Good morning. Today we're looking at a new teaching series called Established in the Love of God. And friends, in these difficult times, we really do need to be rooted and established in God in order to survive the storms of life. This morning, we're looking at knowing God. And over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at hearing from God, talking with God, serving God, walking with God and sharing God. So we begin this morning by looking at just three verses, John chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen. I would like to acknowledge uh, raysteadman.org for the helpful commentary on these verses and John Ortberg's book, Eternity Now, which I'm quoting from later. Knowing God. There's a big difference between knowing things about God and trusting him with your life. Knowing things about God is educational. Trusting in God is transformational. Obviously, if you have a relationship with someone, you have to spend time with them, talk to them, listen to them. And we'll be looking at that over the next few Sundays. But the way that we come to know a person, you have to spend time with them, talk with them, listen to them. And it's about shared experiences, which include good times and bad. It's no different with God. Jesus is God revealed to us. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus himself said to Philip, John chapter 14 verse 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Look at Jesus, see God. So firstly, let's look at what Jesus said in these first few verses. Bear in mind that at this point he knew he would soon be going to the cross and this was his last time with the disciples he would want his final words to count. And in this chapter, the Lord Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and for all of those who would come to put their trust in him in the future. He's gathered his disciples together in the upper room for the Last Supper, and he prays to the Father for them. It was important that they heard his prayers. We tend to think of the prayer that begins, Our Father who art in heaven, as the Lord's Prayer. But actually, that was the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Here, this in chapter 17, is the true Lord's Prayer. This is what Jesus himself prayed. Soon he would leave that room, cross the dark Kidron Valley, and on to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas the betrayer would come with guards to take him prisoner. So verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son might glorify you. You may remember that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was at a wedding where the host ran out of wine. And Mary, Jesus' mother, told him about the problem. His reply then was, my time has not yet come. In spite of that, he still performed his first recorded miracle by changing the water into wine, which really is an encouragement to us to believe that God is concerned with the little everyday things of life, as well as the big important things. On a couple of other occasions, he repeated that, my time has not yet come. 
But now it's like a crescendo. The hour has come. This is it. I don't get a sense of resignation or reluctance. More like, this is what I've been preparing for. This is the reason I came to the earth. Now all of the prophecies and promises will be fulfilled. This hour will mean the greatest blessing the world has ever known. Surrendering all to God was the way to joy that was waiting for him and also to the salvation of all who choose to believe. And there are times in our lives when surrender is the only way for us to, when we have to say, Father, the hour has come. The hour where I must make a choice as to whether I will trust you with what is happening or not. And I came to one of those hours last year. As many of you know, our son-in-law Seth died from cancer in January. Then in March, we went into lockdown as a nation because of the COVID-19 virus. In July, my daughter Helen and the children moved house. So there was all the usual sort of packing and cleaning and decorating and everything to be done. In September, Helen got started in a new job. The children were back at school. Things were beginning to look a little bit brighter. And then Helen contracted the virus and was very poorly. The children were isolating in their own rooms and we couldn't even go into the house. It was just drop some food off at the door. It was the best we could do. Then, to make matters worse, in November, Helen was diagnosed with leukemia and admitted to hospital. Virus or no virus, there was no choice. I had to go and stay with the children. When I eventually got home a few days later, I was distraught. We didn't at that time have a prognosis for Helen and the future looked dire. I sat down in tears and I thought, well, if God doesn't exist, I've just wasted 40 years of my life following a myth. But then I thought, no, I've seen too much evidence of God, too much evidence of his blessings and his love and his compassion and his care in my life to believe that he doesn't exist. So then I was angry with God. Anybody with an ounce of compassion wouldn't allow this to happen to my grandchildren. What are you doing here? Why are you letting this happen? God was really getting both barrels then. Now, I should explain that personally, when God speaks to me, which isn't every day, it's usually through the written word, through the Bible or through a devotional reading. And we'll no doubt be looking at other ways that God speaks to us in the next few weeks. So I'm sitting there sobbing. And it would be nice to say that the Lord came near and put his arm around me and told me not to fear, which has happened in the past before but not this time. I picked up a devotional reading book and I read, on earth, you may be big enough to ask the questions, but you are not big enough to understand the answers. That stopped me in my tracks. God is not a fairy godmother and Aslan is not a tame lion. I chose at that moment to reaffirm my trust in a loving God, no matter what the outcome would be and peace returned. It's still an anxious time, but peace returned. C.S. Lewis wrote, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? 
Helen is still undergoing treatment, but I'm happy to say she's making really good progress. And later I read that when you come up against difficulties in life, you have a choice to respond either negatively. Now, you would expect the opposite to be positively, but on this occasion it wasn't. You can either respond negatively or redemptively. Your attitude can redeem a situation. Hand it over to God. He can bring good out of it. Since then, you know, if I've been given the opportunity, I've just shared with people about our year and all the things that have gone wrong. But use the opportunity to give glory to God and to tell others about his faithfulness. So we'll move on to verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. The Father gave to Jesus authority. Doesn't that thrill your heart? You know, to think that the one who loves you, the one who redeems you, the one who saves you, has authority. And he has the authority to give eternal life to all who would choose to put their trust in him. And we can be sure, absolutely sure, that Jesus is equal to any problem that we might face, no matter what it might be. There was a very interesting passage in this book by John Ortberg, which those of you who are in employment may be familiar with, and it's about the golden circle. Simon Sinek gave a famous TED talk where he described what he calls the golden circle. Any company, movement or cause will have three concentric circles. The outer circle is the what. Here's what we make or what we do. Inside is a smaller circle, the how. Here's how we do it. As a general rule in the life of organisations, everybody will know the what. Most people will know the how, but very few people will know what's in the, in the third circle, the innermost circle, the golden circle. That circle contains the why. The church's what is to make disciples or apprentices. The how is by learning to be with Jesus and learning from Jesus how to live like Jesus. We do this through spiritual practices, through experiences like suffering and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That leads to the why. And Dallas Willard defines the why like this. There is no problem, no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. You name the problem. Greed, fear, racism, injustice, divorce, sexual assault, neglect, pollution, suffering, addiction, rejection, bitterness, violence, apathy, grief, war, death. There are many problems religion will never solve. But there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. That includes the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of life with God forever after death. But it also includes every part of our existence, starting with the here and now. Jesus' gospel is the offer of life as an apprentice of Jesus, by grace, through faith, in this world and the world to come. It is the greatest invitation ever given to human beings, because there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. There is in Jesus Christ an adequate answer to every problem. You might not have the answers, but he does. The problem is that we want everything tidy and predictable. And that's not 
That's not how God works. But all that he does is good. He is a good God. Verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I wonder how many of us have been on a journey with children and heard those words. Are we there yet? Ten minutes later, are we nearly there yet? They are so concentrated on the destination that the journey is just something that you have to endure. I wonder if perhaps some of us are waiting for something better in the future. I had a friend who used to say often, life is what happens to you while you're planning your future. I wonder how many of us have our eyes fixed on heaven and living for eternity in a place that is far better than here, far better than anything we could imagine. I felt last year was for so many people a year filled with sadness and pain. And by the time we got to November, I found myself saying, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. When there's a lot of sadness, you can feel like just staying under the duvet. Oh, let's just be like Rip Van Winkle and sleep till it's over. Or like Gideon in the Bible, look for a handy wine press to hide in. Perhaps I can just sit in a bunker till it all passes by and I get to go to heaven. But then I was reminded of a Michael Card song. There is a joy in the journey. There's a light you can love on the way. There is a wonder and wildness to life and freedom for those who obey. And I thought about the joy in the journey and all of the things that we have to be thankful for, which is what Ruth reminded us about a few weeks ago. How grateful we've been for these online services, for daily and weekly prayer meetings on Zoom, for the support, kindness and generosity of church family and family and friends. I could go on and on with things that we have to be thankful for. But Jesus said, that eternal life is not a destination. Eternal life starts now, and it's about a relationship. Eternal life is available now by God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something just far away in space that we get to experience when we die. Eternal life begins as soon as you put your trust in Jesus. It's life with God right now, and it's a life that death cannot stop. When Jesus came to earth, eternity invaded time. And salvation is not so much about getting us into heaven as getting heaven into us and then letting it leak out to others. So eternal life begins at the point that you decide to follow Jesus, to live in obedience to his teaching and to let him rule and reign in your life. A song that we've sung recently, Beautiful Name, has the line, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. And that, well, that just about sums it up, really. Jesus talked much about the kingdom of God on earth, a kingdom where God's will is done. And he also warned about the cost of following him. In Matthew eight thirty four. he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus gave us two great commands. Love God with all your heart and love other people as yourself. So when you help a hurting person, when you give generously, 
when you forgive someone who has offended you and live in obedience to the teaching of Jesus, then a little bit of heaven is breaking into the world. Jesus wants to live in you and through you now, to grow in the knowledge of God and to bring heaven to the earth. Not to wait until we get to heaven to start living eternal life, but to start living that life right now. Right now, putting our trust in Jesus, walking with him through this life, listening to what he has to say to us. And don't forget, enjoy the journey. May the Lord richly bless you.